If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. Welcome back to the Change Physician Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Katie, joined by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, and we have an amazing and interesting guest who is a physician in the UK, but also a YouTuber and podcaster, and his name is Dr. Ali Abdal, and we are so grateful to have you on our show today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this this chat. It's kind of weird to be speaking to like two American doctors at once. Because, <laughs> From across the pond. <laughs> yeah. And, and especially because in the UK, kind of like quite, quite a lot of people feel like they want to move their career over to the US because there's this perception that, oh, in the US, it's all like flowers and roses and you make loads of money and the training's super quick. Um, and I've, I've been kind of looking into that stuff a lot over the last couple of years. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to be talking to you guys. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, you know, I think, you know, it's going to be a very interesting conversation because there are differences, but I think there are a lot of um, slivers of, of similarities too, of what we go through psychologically through this process. But just to, to roll us back to a little bit of the beginning, can you give us an idea of what even put you in the direction of medicine or why did you go into it? Yeah, honestly, um, I, I didn't really have any good reasons for going into it. Um, so when, when you're uh, of my ethnicity, so I'm from a Pakistani background originally, and I now live in the UK. Uh, if, you're, if you're Asian and you get good grades, it's, 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 it's almost considered a default that you will just go into medicine. So that, it's, that's kind of uh, the, the vibe, especially because like my mom's a doctor and my dad's a doctor. Like, when you're young, there are so few careers that you're actually exposed to. It was only when I actually got to university that I realized people were studying history just because they liked history. Um, I previously thought that, oh, obviously I'm going to study medicine because I'm going to be a doctor. So it's kind of on, the, on that background where it's kind of the default option. Um, when I was young, I, I, I was super into like coding and web design and stuff. And so I was toying with the idea of doing computer science. But I kind of reasoned around about age 16 when we had to decide one way or another and kind of reasoned that it's not very cool to be someone who codes but it's really freaking cool to be a doctor who codes. So <laughs> I thought medicine plus keeping the, the, the tech stuff going on the side might be interesting. I also reasoned that six years at university for med, for med school is better than three years at university for any other degree because everyone says that university is the best time of your life. Um, and I kind of reasoned that I, w I, I wanted to have a job you know, because I did like science and I like the idea of helping people and I like teaching. I reasoned that I wanted a job where I wouldn't spend so much time sitting in front of a computer. Um, so those were some, <laughs> some of the reasons what that, that led me towards medicine. But unfortunately, there was none of this like, oh, I've been wanting to be a doctor since I was three because I, I just love people so much. Yeah. So, so what's that process to get into medical school or being that it's, you know, six years is what you're, you're saying there. Do you mind describing kind of that process? Oh, sure. So in the US after high school, you've got your four years of college and then you have your four years of med school, I, I believe. Uh, in the UK, we don't really have college. Like it's, it's not really a thing. Um, instead, you finish secondary school or high school at 18 and most people immediately go on to university. Uh, and so at university, you study medicine, uh, which is usually a five or six year degree. And so straight after school, you go straight into med school. And so you're really deciding around about age 16 that I want to be a doctor, therefore I'm going to mm -hmm. apply to medicine. And then you start gearing your 
kind of application in that direction, but doing volunteering and work experience and taking all the entrance exams, uh, which is very different to the American system where you have a long time to actually decide for sure whether you actually want to do medicine. That makes me kind of curious because we do have people, um, and certainly in my medical school, we have people who are older that went into medicine. Do you then see that in the UK at all who maybe they completed their first university training after high, after high school, and then they decided they wanted to go to medicine. Is there a path for them to? There is. Okay. Yeah. So we have a thing called graduate entry medicine. So while there's about, there's like 30 something medical schools in the U S uh, in, in the UK uh, that do undergrad entry. So entry at age 18, there are uh, another handful that do graduate entry. So you've done a degree and then you're doing med school. Usually it's more of an accelerated program. So I think it's four years in most places. Interesting. Yeah, and and so it's interesting because that transition, um, we'll dive into kind of like your experiences, whatnot through that, but I'm just curious to tie in when you become a consultant. So I've I've looked at, you know, Australia and New Zealand, and there's a lot of uh, influence there or or very similar, it seems like, when it comes to like the next level, when you become a consultant. Um, How does that, you know, after those years we were just talking about, how does that tie into when you become a consultant? So um, assuming you've done everything on time, i.e. you went straight into medical school and you haven't taken any breaks, blah, blah, blah. You, so, for, so you know, let's take me, for example, I graduated med school age 24. And so I became a doctor and I had doctor in my title. At that point, you have two years of what we call the foundation program, which I suppose is sort of like intern year, but not really, because during the foundation program for those two years, you do multiple rotations in different specialties. Um, so I did cardiology, geriatrics, general surgery, psychiatry, uh, obstetrics and gynecology and I was meant to go on stroke but because coronavirus happened we all ended up staying on the same ones just to avoid disruption so I did two rounds of uh, obstetrics and gynecology and so you're still you're, you're a doctor but you're kind of a very junior doctor in that you're just kind of doing the clerical writing a discharge letter taking blood occasionally doing the history and the examination and leaving it to the senior doctors who know what they're doing to actually come up with the management plan then after those two years You've got a choice, right? Do I want want to do medicine? Do I want to do surgery? Do I want to do general practice? Uh, And then you would, would, you know, let's say you want to do plastic surgery. You would do three years, uh, two or three years of core surgical training where you said, I want to be a surgeon, but I don't know what sort of surgeon yet. And therefore you do multiple surgical rotations. And then after that, you apply for plastic surgery specialty, which is another five years of plastic surgery, which is then when you become a plastic surgery resident. So you have these like four or five years before you're officially deciding what specialty you actually want to go down. And then after that five years of training, again, assuming you've done everything on time and you're not taking time out to do fellowships and all this stuff, then you can become a consultant. And the, and the earliest you can become a consultant is sort of age 32, 33 or thereabouts. Well, and that's where, from a financial standpoint, that's where things shift, where it's considerably yeah. different or? Yeah, no. so when you're, when you're a trainee, when you're a resident or a registrar, as we would call it, your salary is probably in the fifty to sixty thousand pound a year range, maybe approaching seventy thousand pounds a year if you're, you know, doing lots of extra shifts. Uh, when you become a consultant, uh, I think starting salary is around about eighty thousand, and it goes, you know, fluctuates between eighty and a hundred thousand a year. That is basically as much as you can expect to earn as a consultant in the National Health Service. If you want to earn much more than that, you have to start doing private practice. Private practice is weird in the UK and that it's very hard to get into. There's a lot of competition. You have to pay your own like medical legal indemnity and all that stuff. So usually it's only when you're quite senior that you can actually get around to doing private practice. And people who do lots of private practice can be earning kind of 200, 300K 
but there is, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of effort. Um, so most consultants tend to be on between 80 and 100, 110,000 pounds a year. Gotcha. Interesting. So, um, yeah, so many, so many differences, yet some similarities between the US and the UK so far. But I'd be kind of curious is you, you kind of went into this path because of it was sort of form for you, the path towards medicine. When did you or have you had any challenges or thought, you know, maybe this wasn't the right route for me? I don't think I've ever thought it wasn't the right route for me. Um, it's more that basically ever since I started medical school and I started interacting with real life doctors, I always had this pet question that I used to ask them, which is that um, if you won the lottery, would you still do medicine? And that's an interesting question to ask because uh, about half of them say, no, I would leave immediately because it's, it's not for me. And the other half said, well, I'd probably still do medicine because it's quite fun, but I would definitely go part-time. I basically met zero people who have said I would continue to work full-time. And I kind of realized that, hmm, this is interesting. Like as much as I kind of like medicine and I think it's cool and fun and stuff, when we speak to consultants and even registrars and other junior doctors, you know, <laughs> it seems like this is not all that it's cracked up to be. Um, and so my whole thing during med school and, and beyond was how do I mitigate against this risk where like, I really don't want to be in a position where I'm essentially shackled to a job that I might not enjoy because I have to pay the bills through it. And that's why I started to set up all these, try to set up all these businesses and multiple streams of passive income, basically to get to a point where I could make money from other stuff and then I could do medicine for fun. That was always my kind of North star. Yeah. You know, um, speaking from somebody and uh, for those listening, they may not know that the last 12 years I've been in, I can't believe it's already that long, but the last 12 years I've been in private practice, I've never worked officially full time. And from the get go, I worked two to three days <laughs> a week. And I, you know, the one thing I'll have to say that, um, you know, I'm really inspired by with what you're doing online. It's not just from a medical standpoint, but there's a certain transparency and you just have this, um, uh, it's just, you're very good at just communicating where, I mean, you're very good with the video where you look very comfortable. It seems like you're having conversations and it, it really, I think, speaks to some of the, the, just the real life facts about things, or at least your feelings. And so um, I think you're really good at depicting or trying to explain the thought process that you're going through. And I have to say, when I was going through it, I don't think it was in words. It was just a gut instinct or feeling that this doesn't feel right. And so mm. I want to pull that into the fact that you go through, you know, medicine and a lot of people don't realize what it's really like until you're deep in it. And especially in America, there's a lot of debt, either from 100 to $400,000 once you're done with medical school. So I'm kind of curious, you know, because you talk about people that don't want to work, you know, if they won the lottery, if they're going through this medical system in the UK, what are some of those things that make people feel like, full-time is not really for me or even part-time is not for me if I can make money elsewhere. Yeah. So I think a big part of it is just the, the kind of grueling nature of the job. Um, like, and, and in the UK, like, it's, it's kind of weird speaking to Americans about this because <laughs> we actually don't work that much compared to you guys. Like for example, as a junior doctor, I was capped at about 48 hours a week which is absolutely wow. nothing, you know, like, you know, if you expect to go to America, you're 
you know, 80 hour weeks and stuff are fairly normal. Um, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and equally, even, even, even resident, even the residents or registrars as we would call them would be doing maybe sort of 50 hours a week on average, if it's, if they're really unlucky and sure you might have, you might have some weeks where you're doing kind of 60, 70, but then you'd be sort of, it would average out because you'd have a few days off the following week. <laughs> but even then, even, even on that background of actually not working too much, um, it, it, there still seems to be amongst most people that I've spoken to a general vibe of, you know, just borderline baseline level of resentment that, uh, you know, we're not getting paid a lot. Um, we've got these long hours. The rotor is constantly understaffed in most places. Therefore you end up doing more on core shifts. Um, maybe when it comes to the training, uh, surgical training, I know a lot of people complain about that. You actually don't get a lot of time during work to get your case numbers up. Therefore you have to come in on off days on top of that, you've got all of these kind of just like long drawn out various hoops you have to jump through for every specialty. And at the end of the year, you have to show you've done all these eight different things. And uh, that process and all the admin and paperwork associated with that gets a lot of people down. People think, oh, you know, it's my, it's my day off, but I have to come back into work and do all my paperwork. This is all stuff that I'm sure you guys are familiar with, but it's just even in the UK where we actually don't work that much compared to you. That's that undercurrent of like, uh, this is this is not an ideal kind of lifestyle. Yeah, Oh, sorry. I kind of want to jump in there real quick because um, that kind of brings us back to this idea. It's not necessarily the hours that you work, even in the United States, that's the big issue. But what I'm kind of hearing you say, Ali, is there's there's um, almost an externalization of control. There is a it, it, could you, is there a feeling in the UK from the physicians that there being like there's the ex you know the government's telling them what to do or do, i mean how autonomous do they feel in their practice versus how do they feel that they're practicing you know, being told exactly what to do through their practice yeah that's a good question um i i get the impression there is some, there is some some sense of lack of lack of control um you know, there's a, a phrase that goes around that uh, the nhs runs on goodwill uh, and mm -hmm. I f the the impression I get from a lot of people is that they are kind of having to go the extra mile, but not really being compensated for it in terms of money, in terms of working conditions. And they're doing it kind of out of the goodness of their hearts and because they care about the system and, and stuff. Um, in, in, in terms of the, the control thing, people say that, you know, a lot of, a lot of medicine is just following the guidelines. Uh, I'm still very junior myself, so I don't know to what extent people actually complain about this, but I think it's probably a good thing that, you know, the system is not reliant on individuals being uh, particularly maverick and actually reliant on guidelines. Um, <laughs> but definitely, you know, amongst a lot of uh, registrars and consultants that I've spoken to, there is a sense that, uh, you know, the way that the way that our system is, is not ideal, but it's the way it has to be because of the nice guidelines or because of, you know, what the guidelines are around this thing or because of cost, cost issues and stuff. Well, and that's a, that's an interesting point between what's, what seems to be best by the evidence versus what we as humans kind of chafe at. Cause, um, and I've, I've had discussions with those, with physicians in the United States who get really upset about what they call algorithmic medicine. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, actually, have you ever looked at the data on algorithms compared to clinical judgment? Well, no. Well, for the last 50 plus years, the best clinicians, if they're really, really good, seem to equal what the algorithms do rather than uh, exceed what the algorithms do. So, but but again, it's kind of become this this control issue, and and um, I, it's just it's kind of interesting to hear that even in the UK that there's people who just don't feel like 
I don't know if I was working 48 hours a week, <laughs> it'd be a whole different, you know, kind of boat compared to what, uh, what we were doing, um, yeah. in our hospitals. But I, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's an, it's an interesting conundrum because as we kind of were talking about before we got on, you were saying a lot of UK physicians have this idea of the United States being like the golden land of opportunity for medicine and would make a bunch of money. And, and it's the, I guess it sort of is the wild west of medicine, but we're still as unhappier as more. And in the United States, I see tons of forum discussions on, well, how can we leave the United States and go practice in the UK or Canada or Australia or New Zealand? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for the audience, yeah. that the grass is no greener anywhere else. It's really kind of take control of, of your life and your practice and what you want to do. So, yeah. Well, you know, that whole wild wild, I mean, this in obviously our medical system has uh, our country and we won't get all that, but there's, there's always, there's always some underbelly to um, any country. And when it comes to medicine, there's, there's so many things being done that aren't really in alignment with the evidence. And of course, when you have a fee for service type of uh, system that is rewarding things being done to patients, it's, you know, something that, you know, uh, Kevin and I have talked about in the past, you know, you, you can get in conflict with, you know, people, if they are focusing on what you get reimbursed for, that can lead you astray and lead you into a place where Mm. it's not really what's best for the patient. Um, You know, and, and Kevin and I have had these moments of coming to a crossroads, you know, you know, the money doesn't mean anything if you're not doing the right thing. And, and so following your heart and doing what's best for patients that's something that people have to contend with, uh, whether they're willing to face that or, or look at those side by side, because when there's money tied to it and it's your pain for the roof over your head, it's, it's, uh, it's a struggle for some people and they don't always want to face that. So, um, and I have to say, you know, talking about how this starting part-time and getting pushed and hard to work 126 hours, I clocked one time in my general what? surgery internship, I think it put a bad taste in my mouth, you know, like, okay, <laughs> let me see what I've been taught. This doesn't make sense. Um, I don't want to be burned out and I really want to travel and I want to do other things. Um, so let me just pick out the number of the minimal amount of money I need to make to pay for my living expenses. And that's where I'm going to start. So I can always work more, <laughs> but let's just stick with, you know, the fundamentals. Um, but I think in this country, we, we just, we just like, keep going on this hamster wheel and we don't ever get off. So speaking of that, um, you're taking a year off, which we almost never hear in this country. Um, uh, I'm curious if you can dive into, you know, leading up into this, this break, you've obviously for the last several years um, have kind of exploded out, out on YouTube and other social media outlets. I'm kind of curious what, made you want to go in that direction and just kind of, you know, summarize your feelings about this whole experience. Yeah. So for us, it's, it's quite common to take some time out after the first two years of the foundation program, because, you know, we've been in education basically forever. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. you finish school at 18, you go straight to university six years and then two years of the foundation program. Um, this year, I think in this, in this batch, about six, uh, 60, some, 63% of people took time out and kind of had, had this year off, which is essentially what I'm doing as well. Um, in the past, people, in, in the past, the figure's been much higher. It's been sort of in the 70s to 80%. 
uh, people will often do things like they'll go to Australia for a year or they'll do, um, they'll just kind of locum, uh, you know, do some extra shifts for a few months. That'll make them money and then they'll travel the world. Uh, some people do clinical fellowships. Uh, some people do research. So there's all sorts of different things you can do in this year off. Uh, I suppose I'm being a little bit unusual in that I don't have any clinical commitments at all. Uh, I'd initially planned to travel the world, but then the whole Corona thing happened. <laughs> and so at the moment, I'm just, you know, enjoying unemployment. I've been officially unemployed for about four weeks now, and it's great. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the the YouTube stuff is going very well. And so I'm, I feel like for me, the opportunity cost of going back, you know, of, of going into a training pathway in, in medicine, for example, is just way too high because my time and essentially my time is a lot more leveraged when I'm making videos and courses and eBooks and kind of building up that portfolio than it is in medicine. And I can always go back to medicine when I feel like it. And that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, most of my friends have also taken this year out. Most of them are doing something at least vaguely medical. My plan is that I'll enjoy unemployment uh, while I continue to enjoy it. And then at some point, if I get bored, then I'm looking into maybe going to Australia to do some emergency medicine as like a you know year abroad type situation. I love it. Well, I, I just have to say, I, I love Australia and New Zealand, so you got to go for sure. <laughs> if you want a that's few a connections, fun. I might need to connect you with a couple people, but uh, yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Kevin? Yeah. So um, returning then back was when you were early on or recognizing this idea that you didn't want to be shackled to a career, like putting yourself all on eggs in one basket, going in this path when you, when you ask your wonderful question about the lottery, which I'm going to steal, I think. I love that question. Um, <laughs> When you are looking at creating an alternative income stream, or actually in many ways, an alternative career path, what was your initial thinking? What were you think like, how did you approach that into, into to, cause you're still limited in time. I mean, if you're in university doing this stuff, you still don't have a lot of time. So how was it that you made that decision path to say, well, I'm gonna choose to go in this route as being likely to have that potential of providing that secondary career or secondary income stream. Yeah. So I think the, the thing that really turned me on to this idea was reading the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which is like <laughs> the Bible for basically everyone my age who does this sort of stuff. I'm sure you know, people older <laughs> and younger as well. Um, and then I, I still have the Evernote file from 2011 where I was, so the, uh, the thing that sparked this off was, was actually um, just before university, I uh, tried to buy a new MacBook and I found some dude on, you know, the UK equivalents of Craigslist selling one. Uh, and I went to Paddington Station to meet him, to meet up with him. And I, I forked over 900 pounds in cash, which was, you know, two years worth of my savings from like doing tutoring and stuff. Uh, and it turned out that because I was an idiot and I didn't know what was, what was going on, he sold me like a really super old model rather than the one that I was, was looking for. So I felt like, so I was like, you know, I, I'd been scammed out of my life savings. And so I needed to make some money. And I have this Evernote document from that time where I was like, okay, how do I make money? And I made a list of all the things that I thought I was good at. And on that list was teaching because I'd always enjoyed teaching and I felt I was pretty good at it. Uh, I also did fairly well in the medical school entrance exam. So I was like, okay, maybe I can teach some of those. And I was into website, web design, like I'd been designing websites for like businesses and stuff since like the age of 11. So I, I knew how to make a website look pretty and I knew how to code. I kind of combined all these, I was like, hang on, why don't I, why don't I teach courses for these exams? Which is a, a fairly standard idea that a lot of medical students have these days. Um, but I think the key thing is when I had the idea, I, I, I also realized that, hang on, I don't just need to run this course at my local mosque for like five kids. I can actually make a pretty looking website and I can just market it nationally and let's see what happens. 
And that was kind of the first business that really started to take off. Um, I'd been dabbling in kind of trying to make money online through high school and nothing had ever worked. Uh, but then this business, like all of those failures culminated in teaching me the skills that I needed, you know, right place, right time, right circumstances. And this started to take off. So in our first year, we had like 100 students. And the next year, we had 1,000 students. And the third year, we had 2,000. And so this was making a pretty decent sum of money. Like I think I was I was taking home a salary of like 30 or 40,000 pounds each year of med school, which was absolutely insane because that's like basically more than a doctor gets paid once you're fully, fully qualified. <laughs> Um, and then that was kind of step number one. Step number two was kind of out, turning that into like online question banks and online courses. And step number three was recognizing, hang on, you know, I should make YouTube videos. And that was the role, that, that was the thing that has now <laughs> kind of skyrocketed. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, thinking of, uh, you had this little uh, short video talking about somebody that was like, you know, talking about skill, talking about Skillshare, and they threw something on there, and they only had one person buy, and they were so mad, and you know nothing was happening, and and you're like, dude, you got to provide free content, you got to like put stuff, put value out in the world, and at some point later, you can you know recoup in money in some other form, like a course or something like that. Um, but I think it really speaks to the fact that there's so much value that physicians can give in the sense of just their background and training. And what are your, what would you say to physicians as far as how important it is to uh, create a website or uh, do a blog or putting themselves out there? Because obviously there's a lot of psychological components to that, but how important would you mm. say it is for them to get out there? Uh, <laughs> this is the thing that <laughs> I think there are, there's almost nothing more important than that. Maybe physical health, mental health relationships, but beyond that, like, well, I, I honestly feel, feel that one of the single best, like highest leverage things anyone can do is just put themselves out there a little bit more. Um, yeah, especially as, especially as doctors, as, as physicians, basically, like, if you're a physician, then anything you do just becomes instantly more interesting. Like, for example, let's say you're super into cooking. If you're a physician who's super into cooking, suddenly that's brandable. Whereas if you're just like a random person who's into cooking, you're competing against a zillion other random people who are into cooking. If you're a physician who's into fitness, oh my God, like you've got the makings of a fantastic brand there. But if you're just some random dude who's into fitness, you're competing against a zillion other people. So the fact that you're a doctor just makes everything you do like inherently more interesting. Um, I think... I, I strongly feel everyone should have like a personal blog, personal website. Everyone should be on Twitter. Um, and just because at the very least, when you put stuff out there, it kind of acts as a, a serendipity vehicle in that, um, you know, my blog posts, my YouTube videos, my podcast episodes, these are all digital assets that are working for me while I sleep. Kind of like having money in the stock market or money in real estate. It's working for you while you, while you sleep. But these digital assets are working for you to help connect you with people that might be interesting. So someone right now in America might be reading a blog post that I've written or an email newsletter or a tweet or a YouTube video uh, and might be thinking, oh, this is interesting and might want to reach out to me. Like there's, there's so many opportunities for serendipity that happen when you stop putting yourself out there online. And if you don't, then you're kind of confining your network of people to the village effectively that you're born into. Uh, and you're not mm -hmm. venturing outside the village. And because of the internet, you know, it's because of the internet that we're connecting now and, you know, we're going to become friends and, and stuff. And, you know, it's, right. this stuff wouldn't have happened if I hadn't put myself online. And if you guys didn't have this podcast where you're sort of actively putting yourselves out there. So I'm just like huge, hugely bullish on the fact that I think everyone <laughs> should have a personal blog. Everyone should have, everyone should be on Twitter. I love that. Yeah. So do I. I. I love that. And I, and I do love how you kind of emphasized that as physicians, just whatever it is, you, there's something more interesting so, because we tend to devalue ourselves, I mean, whoever it is, every, 
almost everybody out there has something interesting about them, mm -hmm. but we tend to think that nobody else is interested. And I'm always kind of astounded from a physician standpoint. I've talked to him like, well, I don't know what I could do. I don't know what I could say. When he, I'm like, your experiences in your daily life are interesting. Like if you're a urologist, your experiences in your daily practice are going to be interesting to a lot of people out there because all this thing that stuff that you think is commonplace in every day is not, it's, it's, it can be uniquely fascinating. So, uh, and I also loved how, how you commented when early on you were like identifying the three things that you were good at, like, what are my skill sets? And as physicians, there's an opportunity for physicians, you know, you're met medicine, right? There's that, that actress there. So I, I really like that, but talking about serendipity, um, the other part about the stock market, and if you kind of look about investing, you can't time the market. You have to, you know, put your money in and all this stuff, and you don't know when the good days are going to be. Mm. So with you and your content creation, was there ever a moment where you put out something and you're like, this is, I'm just doing this because I kind of want to do it, but this, no one's going to ever watch this that you were kind of shocked at, or on the flip hand that you were like, created something, you're like, this is so awesome, everybody's going to get it, and nobody paid attention. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely, all the time. Um, <laughs> and just kind of to speak to your point about sort of physicians undervaluing ourselves, I think a big part of this is because the only people we hang out with are other physicians, and therefore <laughs> the fact that we're physicians is not interesting in the slightest. But if we think for everyone else in the world, the fact that you're a physician who's into cooking, is you know in, inherently interesting whereas to all our friends it's like oh mate you're a doctor who cares <laughs> i think a big a big part of why so many people i know sort of are reluctant to put themselves online is because they feel like oh what will my medical colleagues say when they see that i am you know brandishing myself as a doctor there is yeah. kind of a perception that you know for example the way the americans do it where you stick md after your title it's it's kind of considered in the uk to be a little bit a little bit crass, like, oh, you know, it's not very classy to do that. You wouldn't do that. And, and, and the only reason is because we don't want our other doctor colleagues thinking, oh, look at him. He's got doctor in his Instagram bio. He's getting big for his boots. <laughs> but I think, I, I, I think we don't realize that, you know, how it, how it comes across to the general public who does not care about that. They're not thinking. And, and, and equally with all the, all the like coronavirus stuff, you know, I, I got the impression that physicians were very reluctant to comment on it because we were holding ourselves to a bar of, I need to be an expert in epidemiology and infectious diseases and respiratory medicine and intensive care in order to even say a single thing about coronavirus. Whereas the general public is like, bro, you're a doctor. Tell me about the virus. <laughs> so it's, it's a different sort of standard that we hold ourselves to. And I'm not sure it's particularly warranted. Um, but to your original point, like I, there's a quote that I like, which is that it only takes one piece of content to change your life, but you just never know which one that's going to be. So like the very first video I made, I was speaking to an iPhone just lying in bed saying that, hey, you know, I'm going to do this vlog at the very least. My grandma is going to watch it and it's going to be good memories to look back on later, later on in life. And I've done so many videos where I put so much effort into them. Thinking, oh, this one, this one's going to be big. I did one where I explained all of the science in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And I drew diagrams explaining sodium pumps and how all the different herbs that Professor Snape was mentioning were actually all these like interesting things and like voltage-gated calcium channel and how that activates. I thought that was going to do well. It did absolutely terribly. No one cared. Um, you know, it's fine you know when you're when you're into the content thing you just have to keep plugging away at it and it's like going to the gym like you don't expect a single workout to have any any change at all it's the fact that you've done it every week for three years that actually makes the change over time yeah consistency for sure although oh now gosh. i want to watch your harry potter video i'm like that sounds really interesting to me <laughs> Oh yeah, man. And how Agra and, and how Hagrid probably has gigantism rather than acromegaly because he's got the growth plate fusion and you know all all, all this kind of stuff. Petrificus totalis being like botulinum toxin. Oh, God. oh my god! 
You put some, you put some effort into that. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> it took me ages to research and no one cared. <laughs> well, that's usually the way it goes. It's always the stuff that's like off the cuff, like emotional or like something just, just seems really genuine and somehow grab at their heart. Like it's amazing how these little short videos that don't have the best background or the lighting, like those are the ones that draw attention. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, you know, uh, in the, in the past couple of weeks, I've released like, you know, a few half an hour long videos, like 30 minutes is ridiculous for a YouTube video where I just kind of talk to the camera and be like, yeah, so guys, I'm, I'm leaving medicine and here's why and here are my thoughts. And you know, the lottery question and those videos do, do, do done phenomenally well. Whereas a video that I've meticulously crafted with like drone shots and like stabilized camera footage, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amazing. Weird. Yeah. Well, it takes, it takes that experience, I think, to like realize those things. Um, you know, I was, there were so many thoughts and one of them is you kind of called me out too in, in, in a good way because Kevin always gets on me because I'm a physician that loves fitness and all this stuff and he keeps like you need to do something in that realm and I'm you know it's funny how we hesitate and uh, I think it's it's natural to um, feel like you got to know everything like you said um, like with the coronavirus and everything but well there, um, there's another important part to that though Melissa about yeah. uh, and, and I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this, Ollie, for sure, is because of the internet and the space that is in, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And if we're thinking as physicians that we can't comment because we're scared or we don't want to, you know, in the UK, apparently it's, you know, you're getting too uppity. In the, in the United States, I don't, I don't know, they just maybe tear you down or whatever. But if, if we are not in that space, talking about things that it, that we understand, and we may not be complete experts, you know, I'm not a, a critical care physician, but I did, I'm an anesthesia background, so I have some familiarity there, which is better than 99% of the population. If we're not going to be in that space, someone else is going to go into it. And the concern, and particularly even with like the coronavirus, if someone else gets in that space with, the, with not maybe the same knowledge, who are putting out really harmful messages, we're almost doing a disservice by not getting out there as physicians, as people with, you would think expertise in, in whatever that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like a lot of us, you know, th there's, th there's a balance here, obviously, because you don't want to comment on something that you're completely unqualified to talk about. But I think mm -hmm. a lot of us have an over-reliance on, on qualifications. Like um, I've got a friend who wants to write a book about, like a book aimed at lay people about kind of problems associated in pregnancy. Uh, but just kind of doing it from a little bit more of a scientific viewpoint, which hasn't really been done. And he was saying that, yeah, I should probably wait until I'm a consultant before writing this. I was like, why the hell would you wait until you're a consultant? Like, what difference does it make? It's not like anyone is going to think like, oh, mate, you're only a resident. Like, you're not allowed to educate people about preeclampsia. <laughs> it's not really a thing. But for him, is there, there was this thing of, oh, you know, I, I need to be fully qualified before I'm allowed to comment on this. But then, you know, where does that stop? When you're a consultant, there's all, all these extra qualifications you can do. You can be like, oh, I'm technically not a subspecialist expert in early pregnancy care. Therefore, I shouldn't be the one to write this book about, you know, early pregnancy bleeding. Well, let's leave it to someone else. And eventually nothing ends up happening um, yeah. to, to take an extreme viewpoint. Yeah. Um, I was going to, there was, there was something that crossed my mind uh, earlier about when we we're talking um, how physicians, maybe they undervalue you but there's also a thing and definitely in america probably because we probably work too much um and don't have you know spend free time doing other things and i almost get this feeling that people are almost surprised that we do something outside of medicine like if they feel like that's our focus that's all we 
we do. And, and I think it's almost a shock factor that we're putting ourselves out there that's not necessarily directly medicine, or it could just be that we're online trying to educate people. But do you think there's a some kind of play there too as well for you in the UK? Oh, definitely. Like there is this huge myth that medicine is the single hardest thing that anyone in the world could ever do. It's a myth that's propagated by medical students everywhere complaining about how their exams are. It's a myth that's propagated by people applying to med school being like, oh my God, it's going to be such a huge deal. Like when I get into med school, it's going to be like <laughs> hardest thing ever. How, how can you have all that? You know, how can you possibly have time to make a YouTube video once a week? Um, and when you get there, you realize that actually a lot of it. And like in, in my first year of med school, I, I bought into this myth. I thought that, you know, med what medical school looks like is that you have this enormous tide of textbooks and you're weighed down all the time and you're constantly stressed and you're constantly pulling all-nighters. And it was only halfway through the year group that I realized, hang on, this is actually quite manageable. Medicine is definitely not that conceptually difficult compared to like maths or, you know, economics where you have to understand stuff. It's mostly just about memorizing this torrent of information. Oh, this is actually doable. And when I started approaching it with more of a how hard can this be attitude rather than this is, oh my God, this is the hardest thing ever. It just really changed the game. And I think people are always surprised, but you know, you're a junior doctor. How do you have time to make a podcast or whatever? It's like, well, you know, I, it's, it's only 48 hours a week. There's loads of time in the weekends and evenings and stuff. <laughs> but I guess it's slightly different for you guys where 48 hours a week is considered uh, uh, the dream. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say I probably work like 30, um, if that, right now. Solid. And, and even people that they call me or something like, I know you're really busy. I don't want to interrupt you. And I'm like, okay, I answered the phone. I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously not yeah. in the operating room right now taking care of a patient. Um, but it, it is funny the, the, the society's perception of you, um, or what their beliefs are yeah. that you are as a physician. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's something that we, we enjoy <laughs> as physicians propagating. <laughs> oh yeah. It's really hard. <laughs> Well, hey, makes you, you know. feel better that little selfish part of you yeah but i guess it's you know like friends of mine working in management consulting in law in, in london they're sort of you know have days where they get into the office at 7 a.m they don't leave until midnight they don't get paid any extra they don't complain they just know it's part of the job mm -hmm. uh and at least as doctors in the uk we complain about it <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. exactly kevin any other questions oh i was just gonna ask you um it seems like reading has also been an important part of your journey. I know you have part of your, your, your YouTube channel is, is your book club, which I think is fantastic. And I think that's important for physicians, particularly in the United States where again, the hours or whatever, where we lose all this stuff and you have a lot of non-medical books in there. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're a junior doctor, but your book recommendations aren't um, Robin's pathology. So how important is it to you to read outside of medicine or, or how valuable has that been to you over your career so far? Oh God, I can't, you know, <laughs> I, I can't even put an, an ROI on it. Like these days, if, if someone recommends a book, I will just buy it without looking at the price tag just because, you know, the amount of value you could possibly get from a book is astronomical like you know i i think i think i illegally downloaded the four-hour work week but then I, I later ended up buying it for like you know seven pounds and that book has completely changed my life and may it help help me set up like a, a seven-figure business and it's just absolutely insane how much value you can get from a single book um and the other thing I, I always kind of recommend to people is that audible is like the single like if i could only subscribe to one thing in the world it would be audible because the amount of audiobooks you can get through when you're like commuting to work or if you're on the train or if you're at the gym, it's just, again, absolutely insane. And there's so much good stuff out there that, yeah, I think if I didn't, if I wasn't reading, I wouldn't be, 
I wouldn't be doing anything with my life. <laughs> and so, and uh, like every, every time you hear an interview with a famously successful person, they always say that, you know, books have changed my life. And they say that every other successful person they know also reads loads. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very big on the reading front. And I think yeah, more people should do it because it'd be great. Yeah. So if, to make that more difficult then, if you had to only pick three, three books or, um, you know, Tim Ferriss, I know does the, what books do you most commonly give? Mm. What would be the book that you most commonly give as a present? And then what book would you say everybody should read? Whether, and again, that may not be necessarily uh, super famous or better. Well, the, the book you think everybody should read and the book that you would say that you have gifted most to others. Oh, good question. So the book that I've gifted most often is a little book by a guy called Austin Cleon, and it's called Show Your Work. And it's like this thing, you know, it's a, for people listening, it's about two centimeters or a, an inch thick. It takes about half an hour to read. And it's a very short book. Um, it's, you know, very small and kind of like a pamphlet. And he basically argues for why everyone should have a blog and should be sharing their work online. Uh, and he argues that, you know, we all have this thing where, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not enough of an expert or why would anyone care what I have to say? And, you know, who's going to read my stuff? Uh, but he argues that if at least one person in the world could possibly benefit from what you have to say, then you, in, in a way, have a moral obligation to do so. And that was the book that in 2016 I read and made me set up my own blog, uh, which was ultimately the thing that led to my YouTube channel forming. So I, I always keep multiple copies of this in my in my uh, apartment. And anytime someone comes over and someone's like, oh, I've been thinking of doing this online thing, I just whip out a copy and just give it to them. You're like, guys, you've got to read this. This is the one. <laughs> Show your work awesome. by Austin Cleon. Um, yeah. And I think kind of a book... A book that I'd, 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 I'd recommend everyone read, um, probably, there's a really good book. Uh, are you familiar with Darren Brown? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's like this uh, psychological illusionist, magician -y guy who's like, you know, one of the crown jewels of the UK, but he's recently started to make it big in America. Uh, weirdly, he has written a book about happiness called Happy, uh, why more or less everything is absolutely fine. Uh, and it's all about stoicism and the philosophy of stoicism and how it leads to less stress and more tranquility and more happiness. Uh, and that's one of my favorite books of all time. So it's what I'd recommend to everyone. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one now because Darren Brown, if I'm remembering correctly, is the mentalist and didn't in, yeah. at least here he did the thing, the push yeah. uh, on Netflix, yeah. which was, <laughs> you haven't watched that one. Oh my God. Where you, like, how could you take a normal person and get him to the point where they would push someone to their death by the end of an evening? That was like crazy. Oh, but wow. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, he's um, one of my idols. He's 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 probably the person I would say like if I could have if I could have dinner with anyone, it would be him. He's great. Um, but yeah, <laughs> he's written a book about happiness, and it's pretty good. <laughs> well, you just made me um, think of a couple books that, as as you just said, I'm just going to order them, and they're going to be added <laughs> to my list of things to to read. Um, nice. be before we finish off, I just want um, if you could. I think it's really interesting that you um, you're doing a podcast with your brother um called uh not overthinking um do you mind just telling us just a little bit about that or anything else you want to share that you're doing you want to lead anyone to to what's going on in your life yeah so my brother and i have a podcast that we do once a week it's called not overthinking uh it's we kind of overthink about a lot of things uh, that we think more people should think about so um in some episodes we've talked about kind of you know what makes an awkward silence and uh you know what's the best way to make friends and how should we treat kids in our life and how should we treat adults in our life? So, you know, you know, there's these sorts of like social, socializing-y, relationship-y type topics. We had a really good one a couple of weeks ago with this guy called Paul Millard, who um, 
was a management consultant for 10 years uh, working in New York. And then he realized that kind of this whole corporate ladder work workism that is endemic in the West uh, was not the way forward. So now he like lives off the, you know, the fat of the land and uh, kind of chills. And he writes a lot about uh, kind of combating this attitude of workism that we all have, where we are defined by the job that we do. And the first question we want to ask people is, so what do you do? And it, it becomes like this yardstick by which we, we measure people. So that was an that was an interesting episode. So occasionally we have guests on talking about their thoughts, but yeah, it's like a weekly podcast where my brother and I have a chat about whatever's on our mind. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll put all the links to everything we've talked about so they can find out, uh, or even some of these books you mentioned. Um, you know, I'll, I'll find anything that you talk about those so that they can awesome. <laughs> take a listen themselves. Love it, Kevin. No, I, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, it's I, I, it's enjoyable watching your career path here and how how you've taken control of your life at a pretty young age. I mean, you, it's, I, I just want people to watch this and see. Um, yeah. I don't know if I have control of it. Like my mom constantly tells me I'm, I'm lacking any direction in life and I, I agree with her. Uh, <laughs> but my view is, uh, you know, it's not going anywhere. It's, well, maybe you're, no rush you're to be a consultant. <laughs> you're <guess>. comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable, I guess would be the other thing. Comfortable yeah, I guess so. So, but I, I really, it was a really enjoyable conversation. I got a couple of great book recommendations out of there. So I'm looking forward to read. Um, so anything else, Melissa? Just one last thing. I think this kind of, you know, people should go and listen to his content. It, it really is amazing. And I realized some of the things you said, not just in diversifying your source of income, not just trading your time for money, but even diversifying your identities, that you're not just a physician, that you have other things that bring value to this world and and being open to that and honoring all of those things and exploring those other things um, really can allow you to ride the wave that you're riding now or creating waves in good ways. Um, there's a lot of good things that can come from that. So um, thank you for the work you're doing and and just putting the content out there and obviously got our attention. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. This has been this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kevin, you want to take us out? Sure. Well, again, thanks to our wonderful guests for being us today and everybody else out there. This is Dr. Kevin Caro and Dr. Melissa Katie with the Change Physician Podcast. And until next time, stay well. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com. 